Welcome to another episode of the Hoop Talk Podcast by fans for fans. I'm Ryan. There's my guy, Jalen. What's up, everybody? This podcast is where we discuss all things basketball, so expect a lot of hot takes, debates, and true display of basketball knowledge. Let's get right into it. Our topic today is our final NBA awards predictions. But of course, we had to bring the guys on for this one. Please welcome first from the Impact, Ian Evans. How's it going, everybody? Glad to be back. And I mean, whole season has been a ride, man. I'm, I'm ready for these predictions. Let's get into it. And from the Hear Me Out podcast, please welcome Dro Silva. Yes, sir. Representing no, no face cam today, but we in here, man. We're about to talk some NBA predictions towards these uh, awards, man. Let's get it. Let's get it indeed. Jalen, you got some questions for us. Yes, sir, bro. I'm extremely excited because we've been able to get Ian's perspective most of the season about the trajectory of the NBA and the way things have gone. But we have not been, have been able to have this man, Joe, on for a grip. My dude has been doing a lot of his own things in terms of live stream and covering the NBA as well as a lot of other hot topics across our good old country here in the world of pretty much anything but right now we are in nba lockdown mode and the best way to start things off is probably with probably one of the most interesting races to understand when factoring in injuries the development throughout the season the way players are showing up on their teams despite the fact that they may or may not be in the playoff picture i'm talking about the rookie of the year race guys i'm talking about a circumstance where Lamelo ball was a guy who was pretty much running the table from jump and one of the biggest things that's been talked about most of this year especially on the back half is Lamelo ball's absence and that impact Mm -hmm. and the impact that that has on the rookie of the year race so basically i'm ryan i'm actually going to start with you on this one bro do you think that Lamelo ball's absence is one of those things that's gonna hurt his chances to win the rookie of year award or do you still believe that he's the front runner at the end of the day I think it's actually become more competitive since he's been out. And when I mean competitive, I mean guys like Anthony Edwards and Tyrese Halliburton starting to make their case in terms of if they are going to win rookie of the year, in terms of their standing in winning rookie of the year. There's no doubt that LaMelo was the front runner for the most part of this season, but when he was injured, especially considering that Anthony Edwards has been starting for Minnesota. I think we've really been able to see his impact on the floor and how he's helped the Timberwolves in terms of, in terms of scoring on offense and especially with his defensive potential as well. And then with Tyrese Halliburton, he's actually getting starter minutes for the Sacramento Kings. And this is a guy who's drastically improved from his start of the season as well. So I think that the race has actually become a lot tighter than we think. Yeah, Ian, I think the bigger thing that I'm looking at when it comes to LaMelo Ball's impact is obviously the fact that when you compare him to some of the other guys that are in the mix, uh, Tyrese Halliburton for Sacramento, um, obviously Anthony Edwards for uh, the Timberwolves, or even a guy like Sadiq Bey who got a lot of traction um, for the Pistons, the big difference between him and those guys is his impact on the playoff implications. He's been a guy that pretty much was helping them in that playoff direction and honestly might have been part of the reason they had the kind of cushion they've had to the point where they haven't had to sweat too much about being in the play-in area for most of this uh, most of this season. And even right now, they're in a pretty good mix where they sit in a pretty comfortable spot at eight 
where they still have a chance to be able to move up, even despite the circumstances. So what's your take on LaMelo Ball's chances of winning rookie of the year? Do you still have, still have him as the front runner or do, do you see Anthony Edwards or somebody else creeping up? You know, usually when it comes to rookie of the year uh, awards, especially with injuries, um, I usually say they shouldn't, you know, even not, not be eligible, more of uh, it, it'll take like some sort of impact on their actual like chances of winning. However, that wasn't the case with Ben Simmons. We all get that, blah, blah, blah. That's a whole conversation for another day. But it's weird. Do I, it's weird. I still think he's the, uh, uh, not necessarily the front runner, but I think at the end of the day, he'll win it. I only say that because one, narrative. Two, be ha- because of, sadly, one, because of narrative, just in general. I, I don't like how narrative plays a role in a lot of these rewards, especially MVP, but that's, we'll get into that later, I guess. Um, but when, when you look at the narrative with LaMelo Ball, you know, third overall pick to the uh, Hornets, I mean, played incredible. I mean, you look everywhere um, on social media, ESPN, Bleach Report, Miles Bridges will dunk on somebody, catch a body, cross somebody up, and they will pan from Miles Bridges straight to LaMelo Ball <laughs> and some drunk and chains. They, it was like, it's like, it's like they didn't even happen. That's how big of a, like, not only of a, I guess icon even at this point because of, you know, family wise, but also just because of his impact. And like, if he wasn't playing this good, all of the cameras wouldn't be on him. It's simple as that. Um, I also say that be, like the injury isn't too much of a concern for me only because if you look at stats wise for both of these guys, Anthony Edwards only leads in points per game. I know it's by three more points, but he only leads in points per game. LaMelo ball granted, Anthony Edwards has played more games. We know it's because of the injury. And LaMelo Ball has a chance to come back. That's another thing to also add into that. But LaMelo Ball averages more rebounds, more assists, higher field goal percentage, higher three-point percentage, and a higher PER. I think that's something you have to take into account. And they have, like you said, Jay, when they have a better record, they're sitting nice in the play-in area at eighth. Granted, 30 and 31, but LaMelo's cushion kind of helped in that regard. Granted, the T-Wolves, not the greatest, 19 and 44. Like, I want to say 14th or... 15th, one of the two in the West, not the greatest. Granted, different rosters. That's another thing for another day. But lastly, I'll say this. Um, when I look at impact, I think it's close. Even you can even put Halliburton in there. Mm-hmm. But w- when I say what rookie impacted the most this year, I got to go with LaMelo Ball. Yeah, and Joe, the first thing that comes to mind for me easily when you talk about this race is like the the, the one – Back in 2016, if you guys remember, there was that really interesting dynamic between Joel Embiid and Malcolm Brogdon. Malcolm Brogdon, uh, Malcolm Brogdon obviously was the one who came out with the dub in that circumstance, um, despite the fact that Joel Embiid might have been the more dominant player but his, and his impact on the floor was prominent. But the, the fact that he didn't play nearly as many games was the thing that significantly hurt his chances. And Malcolm Brogdon was a guy who was pretty solid for Milwaukee at the time and pretty much came in and produced right out the gate from Virginia as a second-round pick. Um, I mean, considering that kind of history, Joe, do you think there's a chance that somebody else could sneak into this race, considering that we've seen in the past that some some voters do take into consideration health and how much, how much you're on the floor? Or do you just think that LaMelo Ball's impact is just too much to overcome when it comes to this rookie of the year race? So LaMelo Ball, right, he took this 23-win team, gives them 20 wins by the time he's out, and that's halfway through the season, right? They're one game away from being 500. Had him in the playoffs after they picked third in the draft. His impact is undeniable. 
But just like you said, with the whole Malcolm Brogdon situation, if you're going to be giving the award to guys that are available as much as productive, you're going to have to give this award to Anthony Edwards. He's played every single game so far this year. Um, LaMelo's impact alone is probably good enough to get him close to rookie of the year, maybe second place, but I just don't see him winning the award over Anthony Edwards, even Tyrese Halliburton at this point. And that, and if LaMelo comes back and stinks it up, which he's supposed to come back this week, I believe, he come back, comes back and stinks it up, it's going to be even less of an argument for him. So if you're going to be giving the award to – if you won't give it to Joel Embiid, if you won't give it to Zion Williamson, why should you give it to LaMelo? Anthony Edwards has been more available this year. Obviously, the stats are way, way different. And the impact, too, because Anthony Edwards is leading his team to the second-worst record in the entire league or the second-worst record in the, in the Western Conference, at least. Um, I personally, I would love to see LaMelo win it. I just don't see Anthony Edwards giving it up, even to Tyrese Halliburton, him having to be the second guy on his team. Anthony Edwards is the guy on his team, so he's going to have a much better chance anyways regardless of the team's success or lack thereof. I mean, I do think that's an interesting point because you brought up a more an even more recent occurrence of this than, you know, the 2016 one in terms of John Morant versus Zion Williamson. There was a lot of argument in that late that late season run of Zion coming off the All-Star break right. where he was legitimately causing causing confusion in terms of this voting process. And I actually was making it kind of difficult for the John Morant stands to really lean in that area because of the fact that he was just so good. And I think had New Orleans been a playoff team, it would have been even harder to deny. So I think you have a significant point there in terms of what the impact has been over time. I think that's the most interesting thing about this race is the fact that we've seen these kind of things come up in the past and they go differently than what we expect, despite the fact that we might already have an understanding of who the most talented player is. We might already have an understanding of who might be having the better season or who's more important to their team success. But sometimes it just doesn't show up in the votes. And that's going to be one of those things that's going to be really interesting, especially, Dro, going to your point about LaMelo coming back, because his his entire claim in this stake is going to have a lot or stake in this claim is going to have a lot more to do with how he returns and how we see him coming off injury almost as much as what we saw from early on because you know we're in a what have you done for me lately kind of kind of lead so it's going to be kind of interesting to see how things go I think in an area that's maybe not as polarizing but still interesting to discuss is defensive player of the year so Rudy Gobert to me, from everything I've seen, is hands down, unquestionably, the defensive player of the year with the way he's played. I mean, he's leading in a ton of different defensive metrics between blocks, defensive rebounds, defensive rating individually. He's on one of the best. He's leading one of the best defensive teams overall that's literally top 10 in uh, in efficiency and just overall opponents points per game. Like, he's the anchor that literally is the reason why their team defense works the way it is. He literally is the the sun that the rest of the planets orbit around in terms of defense um for this team so um ryan going back to you do you agree with me that rudy gobert is hands down the defensive player of the year or do you feel like there's somebody else in the mix who could usurp him so we had this conversation around a month ago and i made the case for ben simmons winning defensive player of the year now, now here we are a month later. I might have to change my stance because Rudy Gobert is he, – he's been that guy for them. He's been that guy for the Utah Jazz. And it's almost been consistently known throughout his career that he's a defensive player of the year, either candidate or winner. 
And the fact that he's been able to hold down and almost be, like Jalen said, a defensive anchor for this Utah Jazz team, I think it's just a testament to how great he's been throughout his career and how much of a how much of a defensive prowess he's been throughout his entire career. I think the real question is, is Ben Simmons still in this conversation? Because I think that he definitely has a say in this conversation. It's just a matter of, is he going to end up winning this award or is he going to be the runner up for this award? This has been his best season so far in terms of his defensive potential and what he's been able to do on defense. So I think for now, I'm switching my stance on who wins this award, but let's not forget about Ben Simmons. So, Ian, I think that it's really interesting that Ryan brings up Ben Simmons because of the mere fact that, okay, so I'm going to read some stuff out to you guys, and I found this extremely interesting because I came to the conclusion that although the tail of the tape will show that Ben Simmons is in the defensive player of the year conversation, I think even Joel and Bede, is in this conversation to a certain extent, some of the defensive metrics actually show that neither one of them are actually the best defensive player on their team. It's actually a guy in Matisse Thibel, and that's actually kind of why I want to come to Ian specifically, because this is a guy that, unfortunately, the Celtics passed up on. But I also think outside of that, I think he's making a significant run in his own right that I think is kind of interesting to touch on. If you look at a lot of the stuff with Matisse, He's literally, he's ninth right now in steals per game. When you really kind of look through some of the different things like defensive win shares and things like that, he's somewhere in the mix. That's more so where Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid come into play, but he's somewhere in the mix as well in terms of that. In terms of defensive plus, uh, box plus minus and things of that nature, the, the high level advanced stats, he's somewhere towards the top in defensive box plus minus. He's literally number one. How do you feel about the 76ers as a defense? And do you feel like any of these guys actually have a legit claim in this defensive player of the year run? Or do you think it's just more indicative of the fact that they're a really good defensive team? Because I think Rudy Gobert is a very good defensive player that makes his team better. I think Philly just has a lot of good defensive players and it spreads the wealth. And that's why their overall defense is ranked as high as it is. So you had to you had to bring up that we passed up on him. Yeah, I mean, you know what I mean. Yeah, like you know, just in, just in case you were wondering. I mean, you got Peyton Pritchard. You know what I mean? We it worked to, out. It worked out a little bit later. You know. We had to. You we had to do that. Okay. I mean, we did. We did. I mean, that's that's my age. I understand that. I mean, granted, I do like Peyton Pritchard. He just signed with Nike Flow, so you don't know. Shout out to uh, Peyton Pritchard, my guy coming off the bench strapping. Anyway. Um, I, I agree with you, Jalen. I think that in regards to the 76ers, let's, I mean, let's be real. We, we all know the 76ers are one of the best defensive teams in the league. I mean, they're second in the East for a reason. It's not because, I mean, they, they um, what am I trying to say here? They adhered to their team needs this past offseason. Now, a lot of a lot of people were like, oh, when they got rid of Reddick, when they got rid of Josh Richardson, they were like, oh, they have no shooters. They were like, okay, bet. We're going to get uh, the greatest shooter of all time's brother in Seth Curry. We're going to revive Danny Green somehow. I don't know how they did that, but they did. And then on top of that, they found a way to get Ben Simmons to actually, you know, again, be in the Depoy conversation, have Embiid be an MVP candidate. They're, I mean, and, the, and then they get Doc Rivers. I mean, they're doing everything right across the board. But let's go back to defensive uh, standpoints. Um, 
I, again, I agree with you. I think that just because they're this great of a defensive team, you're going to have guys like Ben Simmons in the depoy conversation. Even MB could even sneak his way in there just because how good he's playing on both ends of the floor. Um, and then on top of that, like I got to mention Matisse Tybo because he's having an outstanding defensive year, especially in defense in wind shares in general. He makes a big impact off the off the bench. The only reason he's not in that defensive player of the year conversation is because he's not one of those sixth, seventh man guys off the bench. He's usually in that eight spot right around there. Like guys like Tony Allen, who've won the award before, are usually either right off the bench or starting. So um, that's why he's not in that conversation. But at the end of the day, I think Rudy gets it. I mean, he has the best defensive rating of like individual defensive rating. He's averaging a career high in blocks. And that's incredible for a guy that's already in the conversation year after year and has already won it. He's still finding ways to get career highs on the, all across the defensive board. I think it's just, you got to give it to Rudy at this point. Um, I will say this because I'm a Celtics fan. I don't like Sixers fans. I will give them this one jab. Ben Simmons was harping that he was the defensive player of the year. And where has that been after, I don't know how many weeks, but, uh, no, you are not, sir. I'll tell you that right now. Uh, you can fast forward to, to July, June, whatever the day it is right now, and I will tell you, your name is not Rudy Gobert. You are not French. You are Australian, my guy. They are giving it to the French <laughs> boy. Now I'm telling you. Yeah, man, I got to be honest with you. I think a lot of that chirping and campaign and stuff is all good and dandy, but I think at the end of the day, the way it shows up on the floor is Rudy Gobert is a lot of what Utah's defensive system is. He is the system as far as I'm concerned. The ability to funnel him, funnel guys into him, knowing that he, I mean, leads the league in blocks in terms of total blocks on the season. Like you said but beforehand, he's averaging 2.8 blocks per game. And that's a career high for a guy who already, you know, block shots are the insane you know, rate for his career. I mean, pretty much out the gate as a guy who relied on his D.O. on being a defensive stalwart as his way to cut his teeth in the league. And I think the bigger thing with him is just the mere fact that with everything that he's doing for them, um, being Utah, for a team that has improved so much offensively, to, to see them defensively still maintain this kind of pressure on a night-to-night -night basis is probably the most intriguing thing about it because we know that a lot of these high-powered offenses, a la a team like Brooklyn, for example, that has a lot of versatile offensive players, tend to give it up at a high clip on the defensive end. This this Utah team is not them. Joe, uh, kind of just want to get your final thoughts in terms of this deep way race, man, because I, I really think – that the consensus is Rudy Gobert, it's kind of hard to deny. And I'm really starting to think that that third depoy is, is in his favor. But but what do you think? Do you think that uh, Rudy Gobert is the defensive player of the year or do you have somebody else at the top? Let's make it a clean sweep, man. Rudy is absolutely depoy this year, man. The, just the not only the stats, right? I know we, we, we shouldn't always base things off of stats and box scores, but the stats – and the impact that he's having on the game, it, it's the team impact. It's all there. He's averaging 10 defensive rebounds a game. As you guys said, 2.8 blocks per game. And here's another one that I think is really underlooked. He's only averaging 2.4 fouls per game, which is the second lowest of his career. So he's fouling one whole foul less a game than last year. He was getting over three a game. So he's in the game longer. He's able to impact the game defensively even more. 4.4 uh, defensive win shares a game, which right now is the most in the NBA second being Julius Randle and this is the third most of his career so he's leading the league and it's not even the most he's ever had in his career and um, and he has his team right now top of the conference him and Donovan Mitchell obviously but he got mostly well mostly him right now because he's been a lot more available the best team in the west 
the third highest ranked defense. And as you guys said, the Sixers have a lot of complementary defensive pieces to Ben Simmons. We don't really have too many crazy good defenders in Utah. You could you could give me uh, Mike Conley being their best perimeter defender, or maybe O'Neal or uh, or uh, um, what's his name, uh, Derek Derek Favors being the other two. But he's really the anchor. He's ma- he's the one that makes them be as good as they are. So the individual success and the team success is all accredited to this guy right here. So end the race right here. Give him the award today. Yeah, man, I think I'm, I'm really glad that you brought that stat up about the fouling because I think that that just shows that Gobert is slowly becoming a more intelligent defender. You know Smarter, what I mean? He's a yep, guy that, exactly. yeah, you know, because it's one of those things that you fall into this case with a guy like Mitchell Robinson or even Jared Allen to a lesser degree as guys who, you know, if you're a guy who's a shot blocker, you know what that comes with. There's a lot of implications of that. You can be somebody's poster. You could be somebody's worst nightmare at the rim. But you can also be a guy that's impacting your team negatively in terms of not being on the floor. Because with all of that shot blocking instinct comes a lot of situations where you're going to foul being greedy. And this is a guy who goes after the blocks on a regular basis. But with, by knocking those fouls down, like you said, he's going to be on the floor a lot more. And that's huge because this is a team that's trying to redeem themselves from the playoff run they didn't make last season. And Rudy Gobert is going to have a lot more to do with that than a lot of these other guys out of the fact that most of these teams they are going to catch in the West are going to be a problem offensively. So it's, it, they're not going to be – I don't think they're going to want to get in shootouts with any of these teams, nor should they want to. Um, you did bring up a really interesting point when you were talking about um, – when you were talking about the win shares, though, and it was in relation to Julius Randle, which actually is a perfect alley-oop to pretty much our next award and arguably the most wide-open award race in the league right now. Most improved player. Ian, we did an entire episode – Strictly just on most improved player earlier on the season, there were so many candidates available. Colin Sexton's name was thrown out. Christian Wood, Jeremy Grant, obviously Julius Randle was in the mix. As of late, again, and I think we're going to hear his name a lot throughout this podcast, Joel Embiid is another guy who has been arguably in this conversation because of the point that I've heard is he went from being a guy who was standardly viewed as an all-star caliber player to a guy who has upgraded himself into an MVP candidate, which is arguably a harder jump to make than just going from being a role player to an all-star caliber player. So I think that the rate, this race in, in general has honestly been the most wide open of them all. Um, Ryan, I'll start with you out of the mere fact that, you know, this was the pod, this was the podcast episode you came up with. This was the one that you wanted to touch on the most just because of how open things were. Final call, man, where do you stand on it? Because I, I think you could literally go with anybody and there's no way to mess it up, I feel like. This kind of hurts because I've been saying the entire season, I've been campaigning for Colin Sexton to win this award. But this really just only comes down to one man, and that man is on the New York Knicks, Julius Randle. I mean, it just – everything is pointing toward him. I mean, if you talk about – the win streak, this nine-game win streak that ended with their loss to the Suns, Julius Randle had maybe one of the most dominant nine-game stretches of any power forward in the league. You also look at the improvement overall as a player in terms of statistics. Obviously, he's averaging more points a game. He's averaging more rebounds. He's averaging more assists, which is like insane to think about considering he's averaging more assists than players that you normally think would lead in this category. But the biggest thing that he improved on the most was his three-point shooting. And he's become 
a more efficient three-point shooter, and he's even become a much better defender, even though we already thought he was a good defender to begin with. But I think it's really you, – you just attribute it to Tom Thibodeau, who's been one of the greatest defensive coaches of his time. And when you think about how great the New York Knicks have been as a team, most of this success you can attribute to the play of Julius Randle, which is why I think Julius Randle will definitely be the guy to watch out for when the Knicks make the playoffs. I mean, yeah, and Ian, I saw you agreeing with him, and I feel like it's kind of hard to deny. I mean, this is where I stand on it, too. I literally just wrote an entire article focusing on these last two teams that we've talked about in Utah and the, um, and the Knicks, and I think it's just because of the fact that when it comes to this award race, these two teams are extremely interesting. You know, you talk about defensive player of the year. There's nobody in particular on New York that you would label the defensive player of the year besides maybe Tom Thibodeau himself, the guy who pretty much turned this team into an extremely interesting defensive team overall, being a top three defense in the NBA. And then, of course, you know, you see Rudy Gobert in terms of um, in terms of Utah controlling that defensively. And then in terms of most improved player, you know, you can look at a guy like Julius Randle, even R.J. Barrett to a certain extent, whose numbers counting stat-wise have not significantly improved. But check out his shooting splits. The dude has improved his basketball IQ significantly in year two just by the fact that he's taking more efficient shots, shooting extremely well from three. I think he's shooting like just under 39% from three after last year. I think he shot like just barely around 33%. I think just jumps like that are very casual. And then, you know, for, for Utah, there's Donovan Mitchell, who is fourth in usage rate between behind guys who are arguably like MVP caliber and Steph Curry and Bradley Beal and guys of that nature. I think Luka Doncic is the one who leads in usage rate right now. So like going back to Julius Randle specifically though, is that the guy? Like, I feel like he's running away with this. I've, I'm starting to get a consensus that Julius Randle is the guy, but where do you stand on all of this? You know, I think he is the guy. And, you know, let me look as a Celtics fan, man, it, it's kind of pains me to say that, oh, you know, a Nick meaning a rival of the Celtics is probably going to win most improved and then potentially a um, MVP candidate in Embiid might win it too. It's just, it's just pain all around anyway. But when it comes to uh, most improved, I think it has to be Julius Randle, man. And um, I honestly think one that was close, but because he had to go through COVID protocol with Zach Levine. But other than that, uh, I really do think it just goes to Julius Randle. I think Ryan hit on almost every single point except uh, one. I mean, he was a first time all-star this year. And then on top of that, he came from a guy being, I don't know what my place really was in New York. I mean, surrounded by a lot of other guys there that, you know, they didn't really know who the leader was. And then, you know, apparently, um, I didn't interview Julius Randle. It'd be awesome. But like um, I saw an interview with him in it. He said something about Kobe's death changed. He used to talk to Kobe a lot, especially when he was in LA for a little bit. He like upped everything about his game, especially the three point uh, shooting percentage, as we discussed before. Um, I I will say this about Julius Randle as well. Um, He is one of, if not the sole reason why the Knicks went on that nine game winning streak, they are 34 and 28 fourth in the East for a reason. I mean, he, he's upped him, ups himself in almost every category. It's, it's really unreal to watch. And you're talking about a guy that came in from Kentucky went to the national championship yet, right? From Kentucky, got drafted by the Lakers, didn't even know what his role was going to be with that squad. Basically wasn't even used as a primary 
threat on offense or defense. He just came in as a glue glue guy, but that was never his role, especially if you look at how he played at Kentucky. So when he went to New York, you know, people were like, why are we getting this guy that only averaged about 10-ish points per game and his PR was low? He has steadily risen his numbers. Granted, he had some okay years with New York specifically last year, but you want to talk about a guy that made a jump? Julius Randle. And this is tough for a team like the Knicks, too. You can Mm. do this with um, oh, the Celtics, like JB, uh, uh, love Jalen Brown to death. The Celtics are always going to be in the playoff conversation regardless. Like, I, mm. I love how he upped his numbers this year. I mean, both JT and JB have both upped their numbers this year. But when you're talking about bringing a team that is basically a laughing stock to like, or are they for real, is is incredible. So I, I think it's Julius Randle, man. And, and the only reason we're talking about it more in depth now is not only because he's an all-star and because he's putting up 23 and 10 almost every night. It's also because when they were doing good, it was like, okay, but are we sure? Now we're sure, you know? Right. Now we're sure. So give it give it to Julius Randle. I mean, and Joe, I, I want to go into – and we're going to actually kind of stick on this a little bit longer, but I want to get your take just on Julius Randle as the front runner right now. But outside of just Julius Randle, give me your take on the Knicks overall right now, right? There's a lot of this – are they real or not? They're sitting at the fourth seed right now as a top fight defensive team with no real star, despite the fact that, yes, we believe that um, Julius Randle is an all-star. He did earn his keep in terms of being labeled an all-star this season. How do you feel like Julius Randle uh, – how do you feel about Julius Randle in this most improved player race? And how do you feel about the New York Knicks overall? Because this is an interesting, an interesting time in New York basketball because between the Knicks and the Nets, everything is popping basketball-wise right now. And, I mean, it's just really interesting to see New York back on the map with, with Randall at the helm. So how do you feel about Randall? How do you feel about New York right now? New York is probably the second most exciting young team to watch behind a healthy Charlotte. That's what I'll start off by saying before I answer the six-man question. It's really good to see this. This is the Knicks that we're talking about right here. They play at the Mecca. This is the New York Knicks. We, Any basketball fan knows the history of this team. It's really good to see them actually be good. When Melo was doing his thing in 2011-2012 with Amari Stoudemire, uh, had that brief Jeremy Linston, it's always good to see the New York Knicks either relevant or good. So this to me is a W because I love the New York Giants. So I got to root a little bit for the Knicks. Mm-hmm. I got to give them their, their props. They got seven guys scoring double figures. That's a, a, definitely a plus. And all these guys are pretty young. Emmanuel quickly. You got Alec Burks. Well, D Rose, not, not one of the young guys, one of the vets. And he's making a comeback in his career. As of late, D Rose is scoring like 15 to 20 points a game. Obviously, Mitchell Robinson, that was a huge loss. If he would have been still playing, damn, this team could have been even crazier. Obviously, R.J. Barrett, and then the most improved player of the year. And I disagree with something you said, Jalen. You said that this race is wide open. To me, this is not even close as Julius Randle, and I'll tell you guys why. Jeremy Grant would be the, the second option here for me. But then when you look at the two predicaments that you have with Jeremy Grant in Detroit and Julius Randle in New York, it pales in comparison. Jeremy Grant is averaging less points, less rebounds, less assists. The jump was bigger with points, but other than that, the jump was bigger for everything else with Julius Randle. Jeremy Grant has been, um, he hasn't been as available. I think that's that's something that people should 
put into these arguments is availability because you can't do anything if you're not on the court. So availability counts. And Jeremy Grant's team is one of the bottom feeders. They're going to be picking high in the draft. As for Julius Randle and the New York Knicks, they'll be hosting a first-round playoff series. And that's very impressive for a young team doing what they're doing. They are exciting. It's fun to watch them play. Julius Randle deserves this award unanimously, if we're being real. I mean, hey, I mean, it's it's funny because when you make your point, it's hard for me to argue with those circumstances. I mean, that's the thing. And I mean, here's a here's a very interesting circumstance to look at as well is let's talk about let's talk about the circumstance of Jeremy Grant specifically. Right. Um, we all can agree that it was a bit strange and a bit odd, at least when you first seen the world report pop up, that basically he denied four years, 90 million for the Denver Nuggets as a fourth option on a, on a championship caliber team for the chance to be able to play as the number one option for the Detroit Pistons. Very odd choice was one of those things that wasn't very um, discussed early on, but was definitely one of those things that had, had people kind of looking the other way. And he's come in and improved as an individual player and kind of showcased himself individually, but hasn't had any impact on winning. When you look at Julius Randle, this is a two-year project to a certain extent, but let's talk about his removal from being on New Orleans, right? We're talking about a guy who was legitimately, I mean, when he was with that New Orleans team, he was second banana at best playing next to Anthony Davis in those circumstances. And when he was there, he had probably his best season, 21.4 points per game and transitioned to New York. and just got better as an overall player and over a two-year over a two-year process he went from basically being the second third maybe fourth option on new orleans to moving over to this team with new york and making them a playoff contender in the east i'm not saying that that means that jeremy grant will do that in year two or three and maybe he could but based on what we're seeing right now just strictly within this year's most improved player race we're seeing the impact of him going from being lower down the totem pole to being the top option, top guy. And he's taking the most advantage of it in a way that also is adding up in the win column. Um, Before we get off of most improved player, although, and I kind of want to lightning through this one, just because of the fact that I think Joe made a perfect point about it, maybe not being as wide open as it might seem. Um, Ryan, real quick, who would be your runner up in this case? Because Again, I do think that even if it's not a close race, I think there's a million people you could say, dang, they really got better this year. And I mean, I think there's a lot of different routes you can go. So who would, who would be your runner up in this case? I have to kind of stick with the campaign being Colin Sexton, because I think he's really shown the significant improvement. He's gotten better in every department, much like Julius Randle. He's gotten better in every department. But in terms of his effect on winning, it's kind of questionable because the Cavaliers early on this season, we can make a case for Colin Sexton winning because the Cavaliers were winning games. But obviously, it's not like that anymore. The Cavaliers, I think they set 13th right now in the East. They're still kind of in the playoff picture. They have a chance, kind of a chance to make the play-in tournament. But the winning impact is not the same as it was early in the season. So that's where... I kind of feel like Colin Sexton is going to end up being the runner up in this case. I feel like that's kind of the case with Jeremy Grant as well, because we can talk about how great he's playing, but his team is at winning games. So I feel like the two most viable runner up candidates are Jeremy Grant and Colin Sexton. I think it might end up going to Colin to Colin Sexton, considering his team has won more games. 
Okay. Ian, I mean, Colin Sexton, Jeremy Grant, is there anybody else in the mix for that that you would put as your runner-up? Is one of those guys it? Wild card out the left field, who you got? You know what? Since this is your podcast, I'm going to let it slide. I was going to say something about Cleveland and Colin Sexton, but I'm, I'm not going to say it. I don't want to cause violence. Today is a good day. Um, okay. So, <laughs> so when it comes to um, – the runner-up, I, I got to agree with Joe here. Um, I think it's between two guys. And only reason why I put Zach Levine in it is because he's literally averaging more points than Julius Randle. Granted, the Bulls are the Bulls, though. And then on top of that, it's like, you really hate to see it. I mean, I thought that they were going to be great once they got boosted to pitch, and then that just didn't pan out. They got to get rid of Markin in anyway. Boy, you tell um, <laughs> But um, I think I think it's Jeremy Grant, just based on how he became he was a role player with the Nuggets. And, you know, didn't I mean, he got PT. But when it came to PT, he was basically a, a role player that had limited touches and limited shots on the offensive end and defensive end. He wasn't necessarily an anchor, but he was a guy that was able to guard, I guess, three through five from time to time. But when you go to the Pistons, you're talking about a guy that's the main contributor on the floor. You're talking about a guy that gets touch after touch after touch. Defensively, he has one of the best assignments when you look at who they play. And sometimes you, the reasons why you'd be like, how did the Pistons beat this team or this team is be mostly because of Jeremy Grant. Um, and I, I would put Zach Levine in that conversation in regards to runner-up. But um, again, it's only because he's just been scoring lights out. I mean, he averages almost 30 a game. I think I want to say like 27, 28 around that regard. But you, you look at the other numbers compared to it, the rebounds and assists aren't necessarily there. Uh, some other things that like PER may not necessarily be there as well from time to time. But I mean, I, I'd still put him in that conversation, obviously. But um, no, I'll say it. Um, Colin Sexton, man, I love him. I love the young bull, dude. I really do love the young bull. And I, I don't love Cleveland. I was really going to lie and say I like Cleveland, but I don't. Um, they started off great. They did. Darius Garland had a great start to the year, and then he fell off quickly. I was like, what happened? To, like, where is where has Garland gone ever since, like, putting up, like, almost 25, 27 from time to time? And he just kind of fell off. But then you go to Colin Sexton, and that man had two ridiculous games against the Nets. We're talking about this man will probably win most improved at that point when they were killing the Nets, when they were healthy, <laughs> when they were healthy. It wasn't even like, oh, KD was out, Kyrie was out, Hart. No, when they were healthy. I know this was before LaMarcus and Blake and all that, but they were still healthy. That's something to add into it. But when you look at Colin Sexton and, and kind of how, you know, Cleveland, what they've been doing ever since, kind of falling off by the wayside a little bit after that Nets, I'm like, They'll beat the Nets, and then you go ahead and lose to the Pistons, and then you go ahead and lose to to oh hmm, and the Pacers. We know Ryan Lowe them Pacers now, man. Yeah, but um, I love him. I think he has improved. I will say he has improved. It's not like crazy to say he hasn't improved. He has improved. But when you look at runner up, I don't think he's in the runner up conversation. I think he's more like in the fifth or sixth conversation for that. Mm-hmm. But uh, he is in the conversation. Though. I will give you that. And I mean, you already know you're not going to get any Zach Levine hate over here. Obviously, I'm in a predicament with that because of the fact that, you know, we just had our uh, friend TV from TV on basketball on and discuss the Chicago Bulls and the Nikola Vucevic trade in general and the impact that that might have on the team moving forward, not only in terms of trying to make the play in tournament, but just the overall future of the team, knowing that Zach Levine next year is his last season on the contract and then he's going to get paid the big bucks. And that's going to be huge because we need to have some kind of playoff run under our belt before you put a guy under that kind of max contract number that he's going to be asking for. So 
I completely agree with you that I think Zach Levine should be in this conversation. Um, it's interesting because his name hasn't been mentioned that much, but I think that, again, is just so indicative of how deep this race is. Um, Dro, just to finish up with you, who would you be? Who would be your runner-up? If you have a few, that's perfectly fine. But um, who would be your runner-up behind Julius Randle, who seems to be the consensus here? Who would be my backup? Honestly, 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 for, for keeping it 100% real, a uh, guy who's been a bit unavailable for a long time. And because he was out, and as soon as he went out, his team became one of the worst teams in the league. That's going to be Christian Wood and his Houston mm, Rockets. Christian Wood, okay. or uh, yeah, Christian Wood. I thought it was Woods. Christian Wood, the, the homie went from 13 points to 21 points per game. He went from six rebounds to nine rebounds to almost 10 rebounds a game. He's even getting himself two assists per game. The guy was willing this Houston team with John Wall it was looking like they might have won the trade. People were saying at the beginning of the season that John Wall was the winner or Houston was the winner of that Wall and Westbrook trade. And that was literally because of Christian Wood. So I think just off of that alone, he could, if we're talking actual, forget the why, how they vote for MVP or what the criteria is. He is the most valuable player to his team because look what happened as soon as he left. They went on like a 20 plus game losing streak. And they were mm -hmm. one of the best teams while he was in. The record that they had with him in versus without him. And then now that, he come, now that he's come back, it, they haven't been quite as good. But improvement from one year to the next, we're talking about a guy who was essentially a journeyman. He was averaging like three points a game in his last – I can't even call it a full season. He hasn't really had a full season until last year. Mm -hmm. And he was already starting to step it up. And then this year he took his game to – near all-star level if it weren't for that injury so if I had to give it to anybody else man I think I'd give it to Christian Wood it, I, Jeremy Grant maybe him and Zach Levine I only, only reason I wouldn't say Zach is because he was already cooking last year his stats are kind of similar to last year uh the the team performance a little bit better but I got to give it to Christian Wood man if there's going to be a second place here and I mean, that's kind of what it goes down to. And, you know, Joe, I still I still believe and tend to agree with the points that you made earlier about the race not being as wide open as maybe it seemed on paper. But again, I think just the mere fact that when you get once you get to runner up, I mean, we got so many names, Colin Sexton, Jeremy Grant, Zach Levine, Christian Woods name is still even in the mix. Even now, you feel so strongly about the fact that he's a guy who significantly stepped up from last season to this season, really for most of his career up until this season. I mean, the fact that so many names are in the mix, I think Julius Randle far and above has put his name um, at the top of the totem pole in terms of the pecking order of all of this. But it's so interesting of a race because once you get past Randall I think that you can go just about anywhere again I made the I made the the argument earlier that I even think RJ Barrett his own teammate is a guy who in his own respects I wouldn't even I wouldn't even put him top five and I still feel like he should get a vote it's like that's kind of where it stands on that whole thing so I think most improved player is really an interesting race because of the fact that especially with the offensive surge that the NBA has had through across the league in terms of points per game and all the other regular counting stats, I, I think it's just really interesting because you can go really any way. I mean, again, I think Randall's at the top with this one, but I mean, boy, if you had to take him off your ballot and you had to pick somebody else, you would really be sitting there scratching your head for a long time trying to figure out who you'd finally put your pen to paper for. Um, I think coach of the year, 
might be in a pretty similar ilk to this. Now, I don't think whoever wins Coach of the Year is as far and away as we feel Julius Randle is, but I do think that the Coach of the Year award is one of those that's up for grabs with a lot of guys who can all make an argument for themselves. Taylor Jenkins for the Grizzlies, I think, has a very good case for himself. Doc Rivers is a guy who I personally have between three and four in my list. Quinn Snyder for the Jazz, who, I mean, I mean, the dude has the deepest team in the NBA from a one through eight standpoint in terms of productivity on the floor. But, man, being able to make it all work within that is also one of the most impressive things in the league. And then, of course, Monty Williams, who I think is actually at the top of the pecking order for me, is a guy who might not be getting a lot of love in this circumstance because of all the love that's shared for a guy in Chris Paul. But I think Monty Williams built a foundation in those last eight games in the bubble last season and is translating despite the fact that his roster is significantly young, is still a, 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 a fusion of pieces that are all still trying to figure each other out. I think that this race is really interesting. Ryan, starting with you, I mean, who do you have as your coach of the year? I do think that this is one of those that can go any any which way. Yeah, I, I kind of teased in the last episode with Doc Rivers that there was a chance that he was going to win coach of the year considering that last season – the Sixers took a drastic decrease in terms of their progress. They lost Jimmy Butler. They lost JJ Redick. That 2018-2019 team was set to make a run to the finals. You look at last year's team, they lost that significant guard play that they had going into, into the bubble because they really didn't have somebody that was producing for them consistently that wasn't named Joel Embiid. And then you look at this year, they go out and they get shooting. They go out and they get scoring. They go out and get guard play. They go out and pretty much help. They pretty much help provide depth to a guard position that was that that needed that needed depth. In terms of my decision, it's it's Monty Williams because I think he's really turned around a Suns team that was destined for this type of a this type of a playoff spot because. If we think about at one point in the season, there were seven Phoenix Suns players that were averaging in the double digits. There's four right now, but three of them are averaging close to 10 points, and that's Cameron Johnson, Jay Crowder, and Dario Saric. If we think about the foundation of, of what Jalen mentioned, last year's bubble, they go on this 8-0 run. Devin Booker's playing the best basketball that he's played in his entire career, and now we transition to this season, they get Jay Crowder, they get Chris Paul. Now we can, we can put this all on the, the Chris Paul narrative, which is Chris Paul, wherever Chris Paul goes, he makes teams better. Wherever Chris Paul touches, it turns to gold. That's kind of what we can attribute it to, but we can also attribute it to how great of a coach Monte Williams has been throughout his time in Phoenix. And I think that him being able to turn around this team was not something that Chris Paul could do. This is something that Monty Williams could do. Yeah, I think that's the interesting thing about it because on the surface, I definitely agree with you that I don't think that this is something that Chris Paul could do by himself. I do think that the narrative that was built with his time with OKC is kind of what's driving that. And I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. I just think that unfortunately it takes away from the strong coaching that is taking place in terms of Monty Williams. Um, Ian, I, I, I have a really kind of interesting question and you can go about this any way you want to, but do you think that what, what do you put 
more stock into in regards to something like coach of the year? Do you think it's more so about the improvement of the team in terms of their ability to move up the standings from one year to the other? Do you think it's something more indicative of production on the floor um, from a player development standpoint? I, the reason why I bring that up is in one case, Monty Williams is a guy who's helped the Suns improve in the standings on the floor. But then when you look at a, a guy like Taylor Jenkins, another guy for me that I feel very strong about for the Memphis Grizzlies, I would say that from a player to player standpoint, he has significantly helped players across the board improve around John Morant. We've seen a lot of good play from Grayson Allen, Shake, uh, Shake Milton, Dylan Brooks. And we have to all put that in context that, you know, Jaron Jackson Jr. has missed most of the season. Valen, Jonas Valanciunas was a guy that's been in and out of the lineup. They're an extremely young team in their second year with John Morant leading the way. And I wouldn't even, and I personally would argue John Morant isn't even as good of a player this season as he was last season in terms of his production on the floor. I actually think his, his last season was a lot more productive despite the fact that he's still been playing really well this year. So when it comes to coach of the year, of course, let me know based on your philosophy who you believe is the coach of the year this year, but also on top of that, like what factor do you think mainly leads in that decision for you? Um, it's like a multiple choice uh, question, man. I'm going to go with D, all of the above. I think you go with, you know, how where they were in the standings before. And then on top of that, their production on the court, how consistent you are as a team. And, and on top of that, your system as well. Because there's coaches like – uh, for example, the recently fired Jim Boylan, you know him far too well, Jalen. Um, his system was so inconsistent. I, I wanted to gouge my eyes out at one point. I'm sorry if that's too graphic for people, but if you saw that Chicago team, you would too. Anyway, but um, I mean, that's another thing. Is your system consistent? Is it working for every player? And then on top of that player development, like you did say, and I, I think there's three candidates who are honestly in the forefront for me. You did mention Memphis is just because of they're kind of still in that same area as they were last year I wouldn't but I do like the player development that's going on down there I really do like that I think it's between three guys I think it's between Quinn Snyder Monty Williams and Doc Rivers and I'm going to go with the field here I think it belongs to Monty Williams why it doesn't belong to Quinn Snyder what are you talking about Ian they have you know the 44 and 17 best record in the NBA okay but he's not really developing anybody they've been this way for how long I mean, they, they should be this way for how long? And I'm honestly, I'm not surprised if Utah goes to the same exact place where they did last year, especially when you're talking about healthy teams in the West. You're talking about a healthy Lakers. Do you see a healthy Lakers squad losing to Utah? And let's not forget about playoff LeBron now. That's another thing you got to add into the mix. Now you're looking at Monty Williams. You did mention this before when they were in the bubble. They did everything they had to do to get into the playoffs. Obviously, some teams didn't cooperate with their plan. Mm -hmm. um, you're talking about a development in Devin Booker. You're talking about a guy like Chris, oh, the Chris Paul effect. That, that's something, another added factor. But the only reason why Chris Paul was, was even willing to go to Phoenix is because of the pedigree and um, respect he has for Monty Williams as a coach in general, not even as an assistant beforehand. That's another reason why Chris Paul was going there. Another thing, um, I don't think Ryan mentioned this, but if he did, I'll just, you know, expound on it. Jay Crowder was another huge signing that people didn't really talk about because he was, a, believe it or not, a very important piece to the Miami Heat because they have, I mean, granted, they'll still be in the playoffs picture as the Heat, but he was a key three and D guy for their team that they honestly do miss in some regards. But he's another added factor to that. 
And the last thing is, okay, well, what about, I mean, obviously they jumped from the eight to the, I think, I believe they're the two now. So now you look at player development, like who have they developed? Well, let's not forget Devin Booker is only 24. He's still developing and he loves Monty Williams as a head coach. I'm a big fan of Torrey Craig, who they got in the trade from the Bucks. He's developing somewhat well as well. Cam Johnson from uh, North Carolina is honestly starting to mold himself into a better player when he starts and when he comes off the bench. And I'm a huge fan of Michael Bridges. And he has steadily progressed as a guy you can count on both ends of the floor. I'm talking about a guy who can defend from the, who had struggled defending from the perimeter of Villanova to now you're like, okay, well, he's doing this very well so efficiently in the NBA. I think when you look at all three things you said, Jalen, whether it be player production, standings going from a huge jump in that regard. And then on top of that, your system and how it works. I think it's, for me, it's a no-brainer. I think it's Monty Williams. And I will say this, ESPN had <clears throat> the the Jazz finishing fourth or fifth in the West to start. Obviously, they jumped to first. Mm-hmm. They had the Suns finishing eighth or ninth. They are now the two seed. You want to talk about a team that surprised everybody? I had them as a four seed. Mm-hmm. They have surprised everybody the jazz ain't surprising anybody we knew philly was going to be this good we did not think the suns were going to be a two seed potentially mm-hmm. in the playoffs so i think it's my two levels i think that man ian that's a that's a lot to unpack but all for good reason because i think that the one thing that i think you touched on the most is really the developmental factor and i know that that that's that's one of those things that almost turns into a big executive of the year award kind of speech right okay michael bridges a guy in cam johnson making the move being able to actualize dario sarich by the way who has been like extremely effective for them as like a small ball center beyond me never seen the dude play defense like this anywhere else in terms of his other stops between minnesota and philly but i digress then you focus on the idea of making a trade for a guy like chris paul to help them elevate themselves the jay crowder thing is sneaky because i don't think that people realize that that signing for the suns is also one of those things that is sneakily hurting the miami heat and their respects as well so it almost only further emphasizes how well the front office is done we all are Maryland guys here. I do feel like it's one of those things that obviously in an interesting, you know, pegging order of things, there's all these great picks. And then we see Jalen Smith when it could have been a Tyrese Halliburton, for example, and things of that nature. And boy, what would this team look like if you had a backup point guard like that? It would be absolutely disgusting. Nonetheless, this is a team that has definitely played above its puncher, above its weight, a punch above its weight. And Ian, I think you brought up an even more interesting point that is something that I was actually going to bring up anyway because I feel like it's important is preseason standings. The way people view this team coming into this season, even adding Chris Paul, and this is what makes it so interesting about the Chris Paul effect thing that everybody has been trying to use to maybe hurt Monty Williams' case. The Chris Paul effect had them at eighth before the year started. So how real do you think Chris Paul is? Is he real because now it's showing up on the on the stat sheet for him as well as as well as in the standings now? Or did or is Chris Paul exactly the player you thought he was? And this team is just playing better than anticipated. I think that I think the latter is right, and I think that has a lot more to do with Monty Williams. Uh, Dro, it's kind of I kind of want you to expound upon a lot of this for us, though, just from your perspective because of the fact that I agree with Ian in terms of the whole thing where a lot of people are going to come to this podcast and say, man, Quinn Snyder has the jazz at the top of the Western conference, the hardest division in basketball out of the two. 
he's a guy who basically has eight to nine guys playing at full throttle. He has two all-stars on the team, along with Mike Conley, who kind of slid in as well, but has been playing really well. But I don't even think he's top three. I think he's, I think he might be third if he's the third, but I don't even think he's top three because I think there's a lot of guys that can make a better argument. Do, do you feel like it's Monty Williams is the, the coach of the year? Do you have somebody else? How do you feel about Quinn Snyder? You can dissect this however you want to, bro. I'm going to keep it real with y'all, bro. I don't got Monty Williams winning this award. Honestly, I would give this award to Doc Rivers. That would be my coach of the year right now, just because he's taking a very similar 2021 Philadelphia 76ers and giving them almost 10 plus. Right now, they're about to match last year's winning uh, winning amount of games won. You know, they're already at 40 right now. Last year, they won 42 uh, and this is with essentially the same squad as last year. Uh, you add a Dwight Howard, Danny, uh, Danny Granger. And guys are playing really good. And for me, what it was that, that really separated it was how well they played without Joel Embiid. And the fact that people are now acknowledging Ben Simmons to be – the last year the narrative around Ben Simmons was he can't shoot. Now the main narrative around Ben Simmons is this guy is a hellish – hellacious defender this guy is able to strap up a lot of perimeter guys is able to play post defense as well if he could figure out that jump shot oh my goodness man this guy would be top tier bro he would be he would be a top five player in our league bro and not in our league in the nba but um it's crazy to see here's the thing though why i kind of it's awkward to say something about doc rivers being the best coach or being the coach of the year because it is a regular season award people should always remember that come playoff time doc rivers is going to end up showing who he really is and we haven't seen him get to even the conference finals yet we've seen him or uh, at least since that um since boston of course we haven't seen him touch conference finals in a very very long time and um Regular season wise, it's for me. It's between, it's between Doc Rivers and um, and Quinn Snyder. Honestly, the reason I, I think I'm one of those guys that y'all are talking about, where it's like you're gonna have somebody come on here and talk about the Chris Paul effect. It's real, bro, because you see Chris Paul is elevating this team, man. He really is. He's the kind of guy where it's it, it almost. And tell me, y'all, y'all can tell me if y'all disagree with this, man. But I feel like Chris Paul is the kind of guy where it's like you can have any coach there, and he'll he will elevate the team. I'm not saying the Suns would be the second or third best team in the in the West without a good coach. And Monty Williams is a good coach; he's a great coach. But I think that you could put even a Frank Vogel there. You could even put a le- a slightly lesser coach, and they'll probably be doing some similar stuff with Chris Paul in the lineup with. Uh, uh, developing Devin Booker with a developing DeAndre Ayton, a young core. Uh, you got a couple of vets coming off the bench. Chris Paul just knows how to really make guys want to play with him, man, more so than what a Monty Williams can coach him up to. I think as far as in Philly, Ben Simmons doesn't have that same kind of effect on a team. He can't elevate guys the same way a, a Chris Paul can. And this, I just got to give this coach of the year, if it were me voting, my vote number one goes to Doc Rivers, man. But is he going to do in the playoffs is the real question. Is he going to be the, the playoffs coach of the, of the year, man? Because that's the one that really ends up mattering. But as far as the award, got to give it to Doc. 
And I mean, I'll take both of those points right there real quick. And it's just, I'll start with the one about, you know, you and your, your differing opinion. First of all, Joe, this is why we bring, bring guys like you on the show, bro. Cause I mean, it's important to be able to really put that kind of perspective in, in the place. I mean, we can all agree that Monty Williams is a top level coach. And I still think that he's top three. I think even based on the argument you're making that you still feel like he's a top three candidate, even if he's not number oh, one. Oh, absolutely. And so he's I think that there. puts it. Yeah. So I think that definitely puts everything in a perspective overall, but I think it's important to focus on the idea that you might feel like the impact of a player is more significant or less significant than what we may feel. I think it's important to factor in the improvement roster wise, not only to the fact that Philly has been able to add in guys, to put around Joel Embiid, but the mere fact that Doc Rivers has been able to help turn Joel Embiid into an MVP caliber player, because we all can agree he did not do that by himself. No offense to him, no offense to his work ethic or anything like that, but Doc Rivers stepped onto this team as a guy replacing Brett Brown, a guy who cannot really maximize Joel Embiid, a guy who kind of let Joel Embiid do whatever he want, and that had a lot to do with why he was on the perimeter so much. Doc Rivers put him down low where he fits best to do what he needs to do, and he's become an MVP candidate out of that. And being a coach who can step in and turn an all-star into an MVP is indicative of how much how good you are as a coach, and I think that's important to touch on to. So I think that I think you have valid points across the board. And then talking about Utah, look, I think at the end of the day, I agree with you in that regards that similar to what Ian was saying about playing above expectation, I definitely think that coming into this year, everybody had the ideal that Utah was the team on the downtick, at least in comparison to the team they lost to, being the Denver Nuggets. It was the Denver Nuggets that were going to take that next step into elevation, and they were going to be the team that was going to be the pseudo wild card as a legitimate playoff title contender outside of like maybe the LA teams for example this season it's been Utah man I mean Utah has been that team that looks very very solid top to bottom they're the most complete team in the NBA from a roster standpoint as balanced as it gets and despite the roster being the way it is obviously it's a circumstance where also he's making all of that stuff work within a system of players that all kind of do one thing well you know what I mean Mike Conley is very good at keeping an offense running making things work Jordan Clarkson single-handedly a scorer a guy in Joe Ingles is a little multifaceted but his best skill is being another primary ball handler Donovan Mitchell I said this earlier Donovan Mitchell is fourth in usage rate right now behind Luka Doncic Bradley Beal Stephen Curry all guys that are literally carrying their teams Despite the fact that he has the deepest team in the NBA, he's literally like he's got a carry your team level usage rate. That's insane. Yet he's making all of these cogs in this system work. So I think Quinn Snyder does have a very large argument for this as well. So I think the perspective across the board is just so interesting because, again, this is what I mean when I say that I think it's so wide open. Everybody's got a case. The one that's not as wide open, the one that I feel like is slowly starting to come to a consensus, the one that everybody comes to the podcast to hear about is the MVP. It's probably the most controversial award of the entire season, probably because of injuries. There was a time where everybody thought it was LeBron, me included. There was a time where people thought that it was Joel Embiid. There was a time where people believed that it was Nicole Jokic. James Harden snuck his way in. Luka Doncic had a little run around. Steph Curry's making a very late run at it, at it right now, this late in the season. 
it seems like everybody within the media space believes that Nikola Jokic is the guy. He's played about a thousand more minutes, more than some of the guys that are coming behind him, Joel Embiid being the most notable. He's a guy who's been on the floor for the Nuggets as a guy who's not only their lead option, but is having a career year across the board. And unfortunately, we're talking about a season that is the definition of a war of attrition and Nikola Jokic has survived it. And I don't know if you should award him for luck on top of talent or simply just look at the value on the floor. So Ryan, is Nikola Jokic the MVP in your eyes or are we completely gassing up availability? Yes. And here's why I think that when we're talking about impact, Throughout the season, every game, every minute, every possession, Nikola Jokic has been the most impactful player in the NBA. If we think about now the new narrative, as I like to call it, Jamal Murray is out for the season. He was their second leading scorer. This is a whole other narrative for Nikola Jokic and, and, and reasoning for why he could win the MVP again. He takes this team to the playoffs with not a lot of production coming out of that backcourt. Now, granted, Monte Morris is, is stepping up, which is something we should factor in. P.J. Dozier as well. He's had a couple of good games this season. But if we think about who the most impactful player of the bubble was, it was Jamal Murray. And the fact that he's going to be out for the season and they're going into the playoffs against some dangerous teams heading into the playoffs, Portland being one of them. That's where you really need a guy like Jamal Murray on your team. You give Nikola Jokic essentially another option on the floor, and that's where Jamal Murray fits in. He's another option for Denver. He's another option for Nikola Jokic. We even go back to where the, when the season first started, Denver was one of the worst teams to begin the season. This was a team that Jalen thought was going to be on the downtick. Look at them now. This is a team that ever since they got Aaron Gordon, they've been one of the best teams in the league. And now they've solidified themselves as a four seed, possible three seed. And I think that the way Nikola Jokic has been playing his impact on the floor, his impact on winning, the fact he's been healthy throughout the season, I feel like those are just some of the factors that we have to we have to take into consideration when we when we eventually name Nikola Jokic the MVP of the season. So so Ryan, I want to stick with you real quick for that one, real quick, because it seems like you went with Nikola Jokic as your MVP, but based on your explanation, it sounded like a lot more of it had to lean towards the playoffs. So do you think that? Jamal Murray being out most recently will help his 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 case in this matter because of the fact that he's been so effective throughout the season. And then in this case, he's pretty much going to be still holding Denver stead pat around the four seed, even without Jamal Murray. Or do you think losing Jamal Murray is going to cause them to lose games and therefore move him down the standings? Like what, what are you saying is imp- Jamal Murray's impact is on Nikola Jokic's stance and all of this? I think it's going to help us case because I think that he's already a great player. Mm -hmm. But if we're talking about right now in terms of the impact of going into the playoffs with the the team that he already has with them, 
the guys like Aaron Gordon, who, like we mentioned, was a was a great addition to this team. Michael Porter Jr., who's stepping up for them. P.J. Dozier's and giving them a couple of good games. There's a lot of factors to consider, and I think that the narrative is in the favor of Nikola Jokic, considering that, like I said, he's been healthy throughout the entire season, whereas LeBron, James Harden, Steph Curry, Joel Embiid, they all haven't been healthy through the entire season. So mm-hmm. that's just one of the factors. And like I mentioned, you know, how grave a player he already is on the court and how he impacts winning the most, I think are just going to be some of those factors that really help him win the MVP. Okay. So Ian, kind of building upon that, man, I think that I think Ryan has an interesting point about the narrative aspect of Nikola Jokic being the MVP merely out of the fact that I think that this injury bug situation has made the water really murky. We haven't seen LeBron in a while, Steph Curry, it's not necessarily, yes, he's missed some time, but for the most part, Steph Curry being an MVP candidate has had a lot more to do with his late game, his late year surge, more or less than it has been his overall production throughout the year because he's only got Golden State at the 10th seed. So I don't think it's any impact from that regard. I mean, yes, Steph Curry is the difference between being 10th and 15th, but what exactly does that mean when you're in the Western Conference where we've seen teams that have a winning record miss the playoffs. You know what I mean? So it's one of those things that's kind of interesting. Where do you stand on the MVP race? Are you factoring in injuries very heavily in regards to this? Uh, where do you, where do you stand overall? Cause I think that this whole, this whole debacle is so interesting depending on how you want to break things down. Um, wow. I'm agreeing with Ryan. That's crazy. Um, I- <laughs> Uh, it's just a fist pump, bro. Um, I, I honestly think it's been Nikola Jokic from the start. I mean, I think it would have been closer if Embiid didn't get hurt from time to time. Um, and we see how big of an impact he. Granted, Philly was still winning some games without him. It was rough when he was injured earlier in the year. They were, at, I believe, the, the staff was like two and four or two and five without him. But now they're actually starting to be solid when he's out. I, I think it's Jokic, man. And I only say this because I mean, if you look up, you know, NBA efficiency. Um, and in regards to offense, you either have he, he's number it's one, ridiculous. number two in multiple categories. Mm-hmm. And and people are, you know, people will say this, you know, you said you said that, you know, LaMelo could probably win rookie of the year, you know, because he but even though he was injured. So why are you saying that Joel Embiid can't because he was injured? Mm-hmm. If you didn't hear my words correctly when I was talking about LaMelo, I said LaMelo has a bigger impact than Anthony Edwards. I think Mikola Jokic has a bigger impact than Joel Embiid. And like Ryan has said, I think that he has been the most impactful player this year. There, mm-hmm. I want to touch on Stefan for a little bit because I believe – I mean, I'm glad, I was going to say it away anyway, so yeah. I'm glad you're going there. Got you. Um, if, I mean, for those of you who don't know, Stephen Curry is my favorite player of all time. That's um, why. So, so yeah. <laughs> um He's again, he's project, he's propelled himself from 10th, 15th in uh, offensive proficiency. Again, he was hurt for a little bit with that little tailbone. Now mm-hmm. he's in the top five in terms of offensive proficiency. And for those of you who don't know, if he hits 10 threes, I believe against the Timberwolves, he's going to have 100 threes in April alone. <laughs> That's so ridiculous to think about. But no, I mean, I've said it, I said it on the impact. If you ever listen to that episode, he's in the MVP mm-hmm. conversation. I know Brooks said he wasn't. Uh, we almost fought. It's okay. We're cool now. We don't got beef. But um, he's he's in he's in that conversation. Um, but again, when I when I in, in regards to him winning it, I don't think he wins it because this is like you said, Jalen. This is only 
a spurt from what late March to April to now. He'll probably still continue it, but they're still a 10 seed. Mm-hmm. That's this is what I will agree with Brooks on that if they don't find a way to get to the playoffs, like even as you know, a play-in team, I don't mm-hmm. think he wins it. So that's my thing on Steph. Does he should he be considered? Yes, for sure. Um, we haven't seen this in a while. He was breaking record after record or whatever. I mean, he's the best shooter ever to touch a basketball. If you disagree, you don't know basketball. Simple as that. <laughs> Simple as that, honestly. But going back to Jokic, I think it's just his award to win alone. I know the, the numbers are similar between Jokic and Embiid. And when you look at how they play together, I honestly think Jokic has been a little bit more consistent. There's been some games where Embiid has some either been st- struggled on the offensive side of the floor, sometimes hasn't had his uh, shots or uh, hasn't got to his spots or even hit his shots from the floor from time to time. Granted, he, I'm not saying he ha- he's been con- inconsistent all year. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying in regards to MVP level status, he needed to do more in some certain spots. Granted, it is the East. They are second. I'm not saying he shouldn't be considered. He should definitely be considered. Joe B has had a mm-hmm. monster year. You look at Nikola Jokic, I don't even think people notice. I don't think Ryan said it. He's averaging career highs across the board of mm-hmm. his whole stat line. Mm-hmm. Of his whole stat line, 26.2 points per game, that's a career high. 11 rebounds per game, that's a career high. Eight, eight assists per game, that's a career high. 41% uh, percent from three, that's a career high. And that may be shooting like, I don't even know how to explain it. It just looks awkward, but it goes in. And then 56% from the field, again, a career high. I don't see how he doesn't win it at this point. The mm-hmm. only way I see him losing it is hopefully and praying to God if he somehow gets injured or his productivity declines, which I doubt. So Nikola Jokic. Yeah. And I mean, even with the injury thing, that's more of an impact on the playoffs than it is an MVP race with how many games we have left. Talking about Steph Curry, like I said, I'm so glad that you decided to take it anyway, because I know how you feel about him as a player. And I know that I, I know that his late, his late season surge is very important to his MVP race. And I mean, on top of it, if you look at the standings right now, they're literally a game back of eighth behind the Spurs and the Grizzlies. And they're pretty locked in in terms of being a play in team. So in terms of being able to have a chance at the tournament, uh, not only the tournament, but the chance of the playoffs, they're pretty much all all but locked in. You know, at this point, it's going to come down to this final stretch of games, seeding and things of that nature. And I think what's interesting about it is I don't even think they might have to be at 10th for long because the thing is, yes, the Grizzlies have the easiest schedule down the stretch in terms of uh, strength of schedule. But if you look down the line for the Warriors, just in the next couple of games alone, the next five games are the Timberwolves, the Rockets, the Pelicans twice. And then actually, if you want to go six games, they have the Pelicans twice and then the Thunder twice. So just in the next six games, they could put something together that could easily propel them either above the Spurs at nine, which changes the narrative of a smidge, not a ton, but a smidge. Or they could propel themselves to eighth. And that honestly changes things significantly in terms of their ability to get in the playoffs. And if you tell me he drags this team to the playoffs, Look, man, there was a ter- there was a stretch. Ryan, you remember this from us recording this podcast. There was a stretch where Kelly Oubre went 41 straight shots behind the arc before he hit his first one. 41. Damn. Everything that he scored was either a dunk or a layup. He channeled his inner Ben Simmons. That's crazy. Man, did he. And I mean, that's – and look, it's very indicative of his improvement and his willingness to become a better player around Steph Curry that he's been playing a lot better as of late. Same thing with Andrew Wiggins, who has really been an efficient defensive player, somebody, somebody that's not getting a lot of props in terms of his improvement this year as a guy who's been knocked for being only a one-side-of-the-ball uh, one kind of guy. If he gets this team to the playoffs, I mean – 
that man, that that should tell you a little something about Steph Curry. I'm gonna be honest, but Joe, uh, carry us out of here with this MVP stuff, my dude. Do you feel like Nikola Jokic is the guy for the MVP? Do you feel like there's somebody else in the mix? Where do you stand on this MVP race, man? Because I feel like this is honestly the most polarizing MVP race we've had in a while, and we've seen Derrick Rose beat out LeBron James. We've seen Shaq lose to Steve Nash. We've seen all kinds of controversies in the MVP race before, but this might be one of the most – this might be the weirdest one ever because I've never seen us have to count injuries so hard. So where do you stand on all of this? I just want to say one thing about the NBA MVP award before I tell y'all who I think it is. Yeah, sure. The, the MVP award, man, I really wish it wasn't so narrative based. And I believe Mm. that the criteria and the voting process is definitely flawed. There's Mm. no reason that they should be giving it to a Steph Curry on years where James Harden clearly outperformed them and they had pretty high rankings. There's no reason that LeBron shouldn't have at least five or six MVPs under his belt when he clearly was outplaying guys that were winning the MVP, uh, mm-hmm. specifically uh, last year, he was a year he could have won one. There was a year where James Harden took one from him that he I didn't. I don't really feel like he deserved. But anyways, um, narrative-based award for sure, in my opinion. But this year, man, this year without Jamal Murray, and he's still putting them at the fourth spot in a loaded West 40-plus wins, Sitting at forty and twenty one, actually, mm-hmm. and um, the guy is the guy is incredible, bro. What can you say? Twenty six points per game, eleven rebounds, nine assists, not to mention one point four steals per game, and then the shooting splits are incredible too. This guy might even be a candidate for Most Improved Player of the Year. Just looking at everything he across the board, it all improved, shooting wise, defensively. Uh, obviously, he's playing three more minutes per game. That definitely mm-hmm. helps out a lot. But without Jamal Murray, and in the last 33 games, they're 25 and 8. So they've been on a tear right when they need to. It was, they were like, what, 7th, 8th for a little while. wasn't looking too good. And that was with Jamal Murray. Mm-hmm. So now they're playing really, really good even without him. He's the best scorer on the team. He's the best rebounder. He's the best passer on the team. Um, did I say passer twice? He's the best passer, rebounder, scorer on the team. And uh, go ahead and look at Philly. Philly did just fine without Joel Embiid. So I think that shows you everything that you need to see in this Embiid versus Jokic debate. I think that's probably the most telling thing is that without Jamal Murray, they Joel or without Jamal Murray and oh man, I'm mixing the names up. Without Jamal Murray, Jokic is on a tear. And without Embiid, Philly was able to hold it down and remain one of the top teams in the East. I got to give it to Jokic, man. This guy has been playing incredible. He's one of the most skilled big men of all time. Like I said, has a slight case for most improved player of the year. I don't know where he is on on ladders or anything like that, or if he even is in any of these ladders, but it definitely should be be looked at at least. But, yeah, I got to give the MVP to Jokic on this one, man. And B has been having a hell of a season. He's been able to really be himself this year. I think he's more comfortable with, Doc Rivers, I think that's a plus to Doc Rivers, the fact that he's been able to play more comfortably and perform even better and have higher numbers, more production this year. But I got to go ahead and give it to Jokic, man. It's it's undeniable what he's been able to do with this squad. Michael Porter Jr., by the way, he's been stepping up, man. He was looking real disappointing (laughs) at first. He's definitely been stepping it up. 
Um, just in general, the Nuggets have been very good this year, and Jokic is my MVP. Yeah, man, I think Jokic for MIP is a very interesting conversation on its own because the MVP narrative has been kind of holding everybody afraid when you talk about just the level that he's been playing at. But, I mean, shoot, like you guys say, career highs across the board, and he's doing it at an insane rate as a legit playoff team. He's going to fall into that Russell Westbrook category of it being a lot of him putting up very gaudy stats as a fourth seed who hopefully will be scrappy in the first round. It's looking like they're pretty much locked in at four. So the question is right now, who are they getting right now? It looks like the Lakers, but that's really interesting how that all could fall down considering the fact that the Lakers are slowly sliding down the standings. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see what that first round matchup looks like. I have Nikola Jokic too, just in case anybody was wondering about the sweep on this one. Um, I feel the same way. I genuinely feel like this is an interesting race all across the board, man. But this is going to be one of those things, fellas, where when we head into the playoffs, man, I don't think all these players are going to be the same players we're calling for when the time goes goes um, by. I think it's going to be really interesting to see what kind of guys rise and shine at the occasion. Um, and, you know, we're going to bring you guys back on for, for playoff basketball. It's going to be really interesting. But, I mean, Ryan, these – our, our final NBA award predictions, they're pretty much locked in, holding to us, at us on Twitter, the whole nine yards, pretty much just setting in stone right now, and the votes, the votes are casted. On that note, transitioning to our question of the day for our fans, who do you believe will win the MVP this year? We want to thank our two guests today, Ian Evans from The Impact, Drew Silver from the Hear Me Out podcast. We'll see you guys next episode. Peace!